you're listening to Trans Advocate Essays. If you like hearing Trans Advocate Essays, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash transadvocate. Intersex privilege and supporting the intersex community, WPATH, Intersex Genital Mutilation and Sex Variant Bodies, by Margot Schulter, read by Kuma. The presentation of a poster session advocating intersex genital mutilation at the recent Amsterdam meeting of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH has heightened a crisis of confidence and trust between the intersex and trans communities, with a special impact on those of us belonging to one or both communities who seek an equitable and productive alliance against the patriarchal tyranny of the sex binary. My main purpose here as an indosex, that is, non-intersex transsexual woman, is to explain for other indosex trans and or non-binary readers why we need to own our intersex privilege and understand the unique nature of intersex oppression through intersex genital mutilation and other forms of childhood medical oppression, which we do not ourselves face, despite other aspects of our oppression which can and should make us natural allies of the intersex community. Indeed, intersex activists who are also trans, like Carrie Gabrielle Costello, or who identify as non-binary, like Hida Valoria, embody this intersex trans alliance, as does Organization Intersex International, or OII, whose human rights commitments speak for the distinctive needs of the intersex community, while also supporting the concerns of trans people, women, LGBTIQA people, and feminists at large. After briefly focusing on the outrageous WPATH poster session and the larger context of the international struggle against intersex genital mutilation, I will address intersex privilege through some examples especially relevant to the trans community. This understanding of intersex oppression provides the needed context for appreciating the common ground that intersex people and many trans people share the experience of inhabiting bodies that often violate social expectations of binary body sex. To help rebuild and strengthen an effective intersex trans alliance, I will then outline some urgently needed WPATH reforms which members of both communities could support together, but which, I stress, must especially grow out of direct dialogue between members of the intersex community and WPATH. An outrageous poster session Intersex Genital Mutilation as a Human Rights Violation Intersex Genital Mutilation, or IGM, a close relative in the world of human rights violations and sexism to female genital mutilation, is non-consensual and indeed coercive surgery performed on intersex infants or children, not to address rare situations of urgent medical necessity, but to bring congenitally sex-variant bodies in line with the patriarchal ideology of the sex binary. Like victims of female genital mutilation, victims of intersex genital mutilation suffer from the pain and trauma of genital cutting, from frequently reduced or lost sexual sensation, and from their bodies always showing the marks of a social system that devalues people with sexed characteristics like theirs. The physical violence and enduring psychological trauma inflicted by intersex genital mutilation have been described by its survivors, who are the ultimate authorities, as in this foundational document closely tied to a landmark event in intersex activism and visibility, which I will detail shortly. Intersex people, those deemed to have been born with bodies outside the categories of standard female or male, 
make up a portion of the population estimated at least somewhere around 0.7% by conservative criteria, or 1.7%, with 1% or so being a helpful rounded figure. Writing for the Intersex Campaign for Equality, the affiliate in the United States of the organization Intersex International, or OII, Hida Valoria thus concludes that being intersex is, quote, about as common as having red hair in a country such as the USA. While intersex is always congenital, not all intersex variations are identified at birth or during childhood, nor do all involve ambiguous genitals. Valoria cites an estimate that intersex genital mutilation may occur to one or two of each thousand persons born, a rate of 0.1 to 0.2%, a violent and coercive human rights violation of the most intimate kind, which no one should endure. Both the United Nations and the European Union have affirmed the arguments of intersex advocates by declaring intersex genital mutilation to be a human rights violation. Adding insult to injury, the poster session at WPATH not only sought to justify this practice, at once barbaric and distinctly modern in its dependence on medical technology and expertise only developed around the mid-20th century, but featured the graphic violation of its young victim's privacy. The offending poster included close-up photographs of the genitals of intersex children, sometimes being grasped by medical professionals. Intersex activists documenting this sad display rightly edited out these violations of privacy and human dignity, replacing images with notices of, quote, non-consensual child genital medical photos. As if to make this display of professional ignorance and arrogance yet more sad, it occurred only a few months before the 20th anniversary of a watershed event of intersex activism and courageous visibility. The demonstration by intersex people and allies against intersex genital mutilation in October 1996 at the Boston meeting of the American Academy of Pediatricians. At that time, the Intersex Society of North America, or ISNA, was in the forefront of intersex activism, a role now played, for example, by OII. Among allies present were members of the transsexual menace. The poster session at WPATH, 20 years after the Boston action, engaged in speculation about the risks of, quote, confusion about gender identity for life that could result from a, quote, neutral gender assignment. Rhetoric that reminds me as a lesbian feminist of concerns raised not so long ago about marriage equality, called genderless marriage. Even more to the point for those of us in the trans community, the assumption that genital configuration determines gender identity is fundamentally opposed to our entire life experience. In fact, organizations like ISNA and OII have not opposed tentative binary sex designations for intersex infants, provided that the children are free to declare their own identities and to make their own informed decisions at an appropriate age about any surgeries they may or may not choose. However, the poster session provided a forceful reminder that sex assignment has been and remains a frequently used euphemism for intersex genital mutilation, something that no medical professional should have the power to do or authorize without the fully informed consent of the person whose body is on the line. An element of the poster session unfortunately connected to the current practice of WPATH itself is the use of the term disorders of sex development, or DSD, a term offensive to the intersex community and its allies as pathologizing natural intersex variations, just as the now obsolete gender identity disorder, or GID, pathologized human variations in sex or gender identity. In 2006, 
some intersex people and allies reached a compromise with a group of medical professionals in favor of the DSD concept, a compromise which it was hoped by some of its supporters would help to end the practice of intersex genital mutilation, but was highly controversial at the time and has since proved unhappy and inauspicious at best. Some intersex people have made an effort to live with the DSD acronym by interpreting it to mean differences of sex development or diversity of sex development. Most advocacy groups, however, use the term intersex, and all leading intersex organizations reject the disorder label, as WPATH must as well. Eliminating disorder language from the WPATH standards of care and substituting language arrived at through a process of dialogue with the intersex community is one step that will help to repair the damage done in Amsterdam. One reason why intersex genital mutilation is wrong should be of special interest to WPATH. The way it engenders a special kind of sex or gender dysphoria that is iatrogenic or itself caused by medical treatment. Here, that treatment is the child abuse of intersex genital mutilation, which, when done in infancy, may well alter the child's body in what proves to be the wrong direction, when that child is old enough to know and express a sex identity. Further, any direction of medically enforced genital alteration typically proves to be wrong, because many intersex individuals including individuals who are spared intersex genital mutilation and come to identify with whatever binary sex was designated at birth or in infancy, feel no need for any surgical alteration of their sex variant bodies. However, it must always be emphasized that intersex genital mutilation, like female genital mutilation, is objectionable for the pain, trauma, and social stigma it inflicts and the personal autonomy it coercively violates, quite aside from issues of gender identity or sexual orientation, etc. As a well-informed WPATH professional who supports intersex concerns put it to me, borrowing the language of many intersex people and allies, intersex genital mutilation is done to address not any dysphoria felt by an intersex infant or child, but the dysphoria and distress of professionals who cannot abide the reality of bodies outside the sex binary. It is the intersex person, however, and not these professionals, or even their parents, often influenced by their prejudices and false expertise, who alone can and must weigh the risks of surgery, including lost or diminished sexual sensation, which is always a possibility, as in surgery for intersex trans people also and decide if the benefits outweigh these risks. Ironically, these risks of lost or diminished sensation are higher in infancy because the structures are tiny, with nerves more likely to be severed. Thus, the need for an infant to give informed consent is especially pressing and, of course, impossible. It is important for intersex trans people to understand that in today's Western societies, which frame sex and gender as binaries, intersex people, like indosex people, must commonly view themselves through this lens, identifying as whatever sex was designated for them, with or without intersex genital mutilation. Although the percentage of intersex people who do not at maturity identify with their binary sex assigned at birth, is somewhat higher than the percentage of indosex people who at maturity identify as trans and some in either group identify as non-binary. The majority of people in both groups alike do accept their binary sex designation at birth. Indeed, when adult intersex people face decisions about possible surgery, the issue is often not that of transition, but whether to bring their bodies closer to standard expectations for the sex in which they have lived their entire lives. For example, an intersex woman might face the question of whether to have a vaginoplasty, a procedure no longer routinely performed as a form of intersex genital mutilation on intersex children before puberty because of poor outcomes and, more rarely, 
of whether to have a clitoral reduction, given the tragic prevalence of this form of intersex genital mutilation. Viewing intersex primarily as a question of gender identity obscures both the critical importance of outlawing intersex genital mutilation and other forms of childhood medical abuse, and the nature of many of the medical decisions faced by intersex adults. It is possible to recognize the real overlap between the membership and concerns of the intersex and trans communities without losing sight of this larger perspective. It is also sobering to reflect that despite 20 years and more of dedicated intersex activism, only two countries have so far outlawed intersex genital mutilation, Malta and Chile. WPATH has the responsibility to speak out against intersex genital mutilation, a responsibility shared with the trans community at large. Active allyship is the best and indeed the only way to rebuild an effective alliance after the debacle at Amsterdam. Owning Indosex Privilege, two examples. As a transsexual woman and lesbian feminist with white and Indosex privileges, I face a number of oppressions, but not racism and not intersex oppression. To illustrate Indosex privilege as it applies to Indosex trans people, I have chosen two scenarios, the second of which is based on my own situation as compared to that of an intersex person. The eager trans child, informed consent and watchful waiting. Much anti-trans literature, some of it sadly produced in the name of feminism, features sensational stories about young children undergoing sex reassignment surgery. These surgeries are, indeed, an everyday reality, but for intersex infants and children rather than indosex children who may be trans or gender nonconforming. Let us consider an indosex child at the age of seven who expresses a very strong cross-sex identity and has done so since the age of three or four when first old enough to articulate a sense of sex or gender. Katie was designated male at birth, but has always insisted not only that she wants to transition, but that she is a girl. She has very diverse interests and isn't much concerned with conventional gender roles, but makes it very clear that whatever she's doing, she does as a girl. Further, Having had time to get to know and understand this situation, her parents enthusiastically support her sense of female identity and also give positive reinforcement for her flexibility about gender roles and interests by sharing with her feminist classics like Free to Be You and Me. Coming from this positive outlook, Katie and her parents have a proposal for the professionals at the supportive gender identity center they found in their community. Why not arrange for her to have sex reassignment surgery as soon as possible, within the next year? This will resolve the body dysphoria that she experiences, as well as further solidifying her social identity. For example, at her school, where her identity as a girl is widely respected by teachers and peers, although there hasn't yet been a formal transition. Doubtless, the Gender Identity Center professionals would explain that while a formal social transition looks like a very constructive option, surgery at this point is both unnecessary and unethical. The simple reason is that Katie, no matter how strongly or confidently she identifies and lives as female, is not yet old enough to exercise the informed consent that surgery requires. Her parents, as loving and well-intentioned as they are, cannot make this decision on her behalf. Only she can do that, when old enough to fully appreciate the risks and consequences. And watchful waiting, to use the words of the WPATH standards of care, also gives Katie the time and space to test and confirm her identity and intentions during the remainder of her childhood years, with social transition as an excellent real-life experience to assist her in this process. Medical decisions can thus be keyed both to the necessities of her physical development and her 
maturing ability to consent in an informed way. At puberty, she will have the option of blockers to delay sex development in an undesired direction. Then, at 16, she can begin cross-sex hormone therapy, with surgery an option beginning at age 18. Although Katie and her family may find this delay in surgery a bit frustrating, we understand that it is meant to protect her autonomy and ability to make fully informed and mature decisions, giving the irreversible nature of surgery as well as its non-trivial medical risks. A professional might also reassure the eager parents that trans kids are quite capable of getting through childhood and adolescence before having surgery without any risks of lifelong gender confusion, especially when parents, teachers, and friends are supportive, as is certainly the case here. Contrast this ethical refusal to do genital surgery on a child, despite the enthusiastic desire of child and parents alike, with the routine readiness of professionals to perform intersex genital mutilation on intersex infants and children, who typically are not yet old enough to know or express their identities and wishes, based on notions of, by guess and by golly, of how the child's identity might develop. What could be a clearer indication of the small value placed on either the personal autonomy or bodily integrity of intersex people? Again, I emphasize that the scenario of Katie at age seven and her family seeking sex reassignment surgery is hypothetical and contrafactual. The whole point is that intersex genital mutilation needs to become equally so throughout the world. The fact that intersex genital mutilation is instead still widely practiced and can be promoted at a WPATH meeting is one cardinal measure of intersex oppression and endosex privilege. If I had been born with my present anatomy. Another way of illustrating endosex privilege and intersex oppression is very personal to me. Weighing my options as a male to female transsexual for surgery, I decided on a procedure that would create a vulva including a sensate clitoris but without vaginal depth. For me, penetrative sex is not a priority, and I should emphasize as a lesbian that many other transsexual lesbian women do choose to have a full vaginoplasty. Given my own preferences and priorities, the simpler procedure had the advantages of being much less invasive, with an easier and faster recovery, as well as no issues of vaginal dilation to deal with. Although I might well have reached the same decision without any knowledge of the intersex community, in fact, becoming an intersex ally as I considered my medical options played a very important part in reinforcing my choice and the reasoning behind it. What especially moved me, as I recall, was the story of a woman with androgen insensitivity who had been assigned and raised female without intersex genital mutilation identified and lived as a woman, and as an adult faced the question of whether or not to seek a vaginoplasty to make her body more heteronormative. After careful consideration, she decided that her body needed no modifications. In the process, I also encountered a classic essay by Anne Fausto Sterling, a writer on the topic of sex and gender and an ally of intersex people where she noted that intersex genital mutilation is often based on a patriarchal preference for penetration without pleasure rather than pleasure without penetration. Those phrases stuck with me through the months of planning and making arrangements for surgery. Now having been through that surgery, I have what I sought, the wonders of an independent female sexuality of a kind consistent with who I am albeit neither reproductive nor confirming to standard sex binary or heteronormative expectations. And no one is seeking to intervene and alter my body without my consent. For example, to enforce a full vaginoplasty. Now consider what might have happened had I been born with substantially similar genitals, as might have happened with some well-known intersex variations. In that case, 
a non-consensual vaginoplasty for my own good and future participation in normal sex with men. And how dare you presume I'm going to grow up and be heterosexual might well have been my fate. In other words, I could be a prime candidate for intersex genital mutilation as usual. The fact that no one is seeking to alter my body against my will is an inestimable endosex privilege. My concern, which should also be WPATHs, is that intersex people also enjoy this elementary human right of bodily self-determination. Common Ground, Bodies with Variant Sex Characteristics while intersex oppression, and especially the cardinal oppression of intersex genital mutilation and childhood medical abuse are unique, there is also a common ground shared by intersex people and many endosex trans people. More specifically, it is shared with those of us who are endosex trans and physically transition through hormones, and often also surgery. The experience of inhabiting bodies with intermediate sex characteristics. Intersex people, by definition, have sex-variant bodies at birth, while intersex trans people obtain sex-variant bodies as a result of consensual medical interventions. Feelings of fear or aversion directed at such bodies and those of us who inhabit them are thus an important factor fueling intersex genital mutilation and other manifestations of interphobia or endosexism and also transphobia in one of its aspects. This aspect of transphobia comes to the fore when it is argued that hormones and surgery cannot really change sex because trans women and men who choose surgery, non-binary trans people are more rarely brought into this argument, still retain some aspects of the sexed attributes present at birth and thus do not measure up to our culture's standards for a real, i.e. endosex, man or woman. The absence of reproductive organs and capabilities typical of a real woman or real man is a favorite theme. To say that interphobia and transphobia share this common theme does not mean that they are identical. For example, some self-identified feminists who would be ready to accept as a woman an intersex person raised as female, especially if she is not too assertive about her intersex status and variant sex characteristics, would reject trans women because of our male socialization. And, as the WPATH poster session indicates, there are people, including medical professionals, who in some sense support trans rights while utterly disregarding those of intersex people. Some binary trans people who seek surgery, as in my case, choose options other than those approximating as closely as possible the standard anatomy of the sex into which we have transitioned. For example, many trans men who choose to have genital surgery opt for metoidioplasty. This procedure is based on the biological reality that almost all humans share in common the organ known as a phalloclitoris, to use a term familiar in the intersex community. The standard female form known as a clitoris and the standard male form known as a penis, as well as the many intersex variations along this continuum, are comparable in size and complexity. The difference is that a standard clitoris is mostly internal, with only a small portion external and thus visible, while a standard penis is more externalized. Dr. Helen O'Connell of Australia and her colleagues have, since the 1990s, documented the true size and complexity of the clitoris, with feminists such as Sophia Wallace and intersex educators such as Carrie Gabrielle Costello making her liberating findings more accessible. In metoidioplasty, a trans man who has already been on testosterone therapy for some time, causing the external portion of the phalloclitoris to enlarge, receives surgery to release this external portion so that it takes on the qualities of a penis. An advantage of metoidioplasty, as opposed to a full phalloplasty aimed at a closer approximation of a standard male appearance, 
is that it is a simpler and less invasive procedure, focusing more on a comfortable embodiment for the individual than sex binary or heteronormative standards. This is in no way to question the preferences of many binary trans people who seek to approximate standard female or male anatomy and function as closely as possible, but only to recognize the range of preferences among trans women and trans men alike, not to mention non-binary trans people who seek surgery. Further, intersex trans people who seek hormone therapy but not surgery also arrive at sex-variant states of embodiment, which may call forth some of the same fears and prejudices as intersex variations, but without the threat of intersex genital mutilation, of course. Members of the intersex community have presented a very useful concept, that of sex characteristics, which is also helpful for endosex trans people dealing with the reality of sex-variant bodies. As Hida Valoria and Dana Zim explain, people may be born with standard female or standard male or intersex sex characteristics and identify, if intersex, as female, male, or non-binary. Intersex people show the same diversity. Likewise, those of us with voluntarily altered sex characteristics may identify in different ways. While I identify as a trans woman or trans female, with mixed or variant sex characteristics. Another endosex trans person with similar characteristics might identify as non-binary, genderqueer, or gender fluid, etc. Valoria and Zim are writing to affirm the right of intersex people to identify as they choose, and especially as non-binary or specifically intersex emphasizing that the abusive intervention of intersex genital mutilation is not only immoral, but often fails to produce the heteronormative gender-conforming outcomes it's advertised to promote. At the same time, in recognizing that many intersex people do not identify in this non-binary way, but rather, as men or women, they embrace a larger alliance. It makes perfect sense to those of us who know, love, and or support trans people. We realize folks don't always grow up to identify as the gender associated with the biological sex traits that they were born with. The common ground of sex variant embodiment can invite a natural alliance between the intersex and trans communities, provided that endosex trans people act as real allies and are ready to understand and join in the struggle against intersex genital mutilation and related forms of childhood medical abuse that make intersex oppression unique. It is also our responsibility as endosex trans people to recognize the special prejudices and hurdles sometimes faced by those intersex people who do seek as adults to transition, and to help them in the task of educating medical professionals that intersex and trans are overlapping or intersecting rather than mutually exclusive categories that the common ground of sex-variant embodiment can lead to conflict rather than harmonious alliance, especially when endosex trans people fail to understand and act on the realities of intersex oppression, is not a new problem. This problem has a number of aspects or areas of concern, one of which I can speak to from personal experience. Since physical sex is a spectrum, the endosex-intersex distinction is itself arbitrarily constructed. One reason why estimates on the percentage of intersex people are necessarily imprecise, being in good part a question of definition. Under patriarchy, where intersex is seen as both an undesirable condition and as a threat to the sex binary, the criteria tend to be rather narrow and conservative. However arbitrary and indeed illusory this attempt to make a binary out of a spectrum may be, however, the consequences of being deemed intersex under modern Western patriarchy are all too real and concrete. From intersex genital mutilation and the lifelong social stigma it reflects and enforces to extra difficulties in accessing necessary health care. During my adolescence, I developed mild gynecomastia and found this pleasant as someone designated male at birth who had expressed a desire to transition at age four. A teacher at school encouraged me to wear a top when swimming so that the boys wouldn't make fun of my breasts, 
something I enjoyed as rather like a third gender status. Before starting hormone therapy in 1972 at age 21, I had the opportunity to join a study and be tested for intersex variations, a possibility raised by my gynecomastia and also a finding that I was sterile, a spermia. A finding, however, that could arise from causes like childhood infectious diseases. Chromosomal and other tests revealed no intersex variations. The best way to describe my situation might be to say that I am an endosex variant. My gynecomastia made my adolescence as a mostly closeted trans person, both internally and socially, a bit easier, and definitely helped when I transitioned in 1972-1973, and estrogen therapy proved very effective. What my sex variation did not do was to make me vulnerable to anything like intersex oppression. If I had been threatened as a teenager, with coercive breast reduction surgery, there might be more of a comparison, but no such thing happened. And while my breast development before transitioning might have led to a bit more teasing and harassment in my high school years, gender identity and expression were clearly the main issue. One man who was a counselor told me at age 16 that I had obviously, quote, been raised by women and was, quote, on the feminine side a situation he hoped to help remedy. My minor sex variation was not the focus of concern. Today, I find that the term endosex variation nicely describes whatever biological condition led to my adolescent gynecomastia and then made my hormone therapy more effective in feminizing my secondary sex characteristics. Back in 1973, the line between this and intersex was not so clear to me, although in discussing my sex variation, I made it clear that doctors had found no intersex condition. Looking back, I reflect on my utter cluelessness at the time about the nature of intersex oppression, especially intersex genital mutilation and childhood medical abuse in general. I shared this cluelessness with other intersex second-wave feminists and indeed with endosex people generally, a situation remedied only when intersex people themselves visibly confronted and challenged the violence of intersex genital mutilation through events such as the 1996 demonstration in Boston. Thus, the first area of concern in intersex trans relations is for endosex variant trans people like me to celebrate our sex variations while recognizing that they are very different in their consequences under modern Western patriarchy than intersex status and oppression. More generally, many trans people, including myself, when approaching transition, may have a desire to seek and find any biological condition that might explain our cross-gender identity. This was true despite my strong feminist awareness that physical sex and gender are two quite different things, as trans people should especially know. The second aspect concerns endosex trans people who unfortunately carry an interest in sex variations and the intersex community a step much too far. By claiming intersex variations they do not have. This kind of intersex misappropriation is compounded in its harm when those doing it claim intersex variations of a non-existent kind, such as the ability to reproduce through self-fertilization, spreading misinformation where ignorance and misconceptions are already all too prevalent. Worse yet, the ignorance of medical providers can be so great that myths spread by intersex misappropriators can put at risk or even cost lives. A deadly example is the myth that congenital adrenal hyperplasia does not have a salt-losing or salt-wasting form, causing a life-threatening condition of hyponatremia or low sodium, which must be medically treated and managed properly to save the person's life. A third aspect concerns the sometimes delicate line between the celebration of intersex and other bodies with variant sex characteristics and the fetishization of intersex people. Like the fetishization of trans people, 
Intersex fetishization should not be confused with a real appreciation for the unique beauty of intersex people and bodies, as opposed to the violence and abuse of intersex genital mutilation and intersex stigma, which like the abuse of trans people, can sometimes go hand in hand with fetishization and sexual objectification. What ties all of these aspects of intersex trans understanding or its absence together is the reality that intersex under modern Western patriarchy is neither an identity, although some intersex people do identify their gender as intersex, nor even simply the current physical condition of having variant sex characteristics deemed outside the binary, as I do after surgery. Rather, it is a congenital condition that leads to the risk and reality of stigmatization and medical abuse, including intersex genital mutilation, through the uniquely vulnerable developmental period of infancy, childhood, and adolescence. From this foundational realization, the intersex and trans communities can build a harmonious alliance. One productive focus for this alliance is in addressing the problems that intersex people face in obtaining the medical care they seek and need. Such medical care can include routine health maintenance and psychological care supporting people in dealing with social stigma, as well as transition for the relatively small but substantial minority who seek it. Until recently, the traditional diagnosis of gender identity disorder, GID, not only imposed social stigma on the trans community, but raised a special obstacle for intersex people seeking to transition, because they were explicitly excluded from this diagnosis that was so often the key to accessing treatment. Indeed, intersex people found themselves forced to conceal their intersex status from gatekeepers in order to obtain the letter with a diagnosis of GID that was a passport to transition care services. Seeking transition care based on one's intersex condition was not an option because practitioners focused on the treatment of disorders of sex development, or DSD, were and are heavily invested in the ideological belief that intersex people will invariably identify with their birth assigned sex, the assignment generally involving intersex genital mutilation, regardless of what intersex people themselves may say in asserting their trans identification. If there is to be true honor and mutual alliance among people with variant sex characteristics, then WPATH is a fitting arena for action. In attempting to outline some themes for this action, I emphasize early and often that only the intersex community can set the agenda and then actualize it through direct dialogue with WPATH, with intersex trans people playing a vital supporting role in this process. Liberating WPATH, some tentative ideas. One response I got in discussing the WPATH poster session promoting intersex genital mutilation is that closer vigilance should have been exercised about who is invited to present such sessions. While this is surely true, Repairing the damage done will involve much more than avoiding such overtly interphobic presentations in the future. It will involve WPATH taking its proper leadership role in calling for the outlawing of intersex genital mutilation, ending the use of pathologizing terms such as disorders of sex development, and also fostering professional education and cultural competence in support of better and more responsive care for those intersex people who do choose to transition, whether in the wake of intersex genital mutilation or otherwise. Intersex genital mutilation and iatrogenic sex dysphoria. WPATH must take a stand. In section 15 of the current WPATH standards of care for the health of transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming people, version 7, 2011, the portion addressing issues of gender dysphoria in intersex people, some differences in treatment between intersex and endosex people who wish to transition is noted. As the authors note, quote, one reason for these treatment differences 
is that genital surgery in individuals who are intersex is quite common in infancy and adolescence. While it is obvious that an infant cannot give informed consent, intersex surgeries in adolescence also follow highly coercive patterns, quite apart from general questions as to an appropriate age for consent for various kinds of medical procedures. Far from involving informed consent, for example, gonadectomies commonly done on female-assigned intersex youth were based on total deception. For example, girls with complete androgen insufficiency were told that they had ovarian cancer and were going to have their ovaries removed. Better to raise the non-existent specter of a life-threatening disease than to permit a young adult to learn that she is intersex. The deception was for her protection. Likewise, vaginoplasty is often presented as a given to a young woman who may be invited to give some input as to the type of procedure as opposed to whether she desires surgery in the first place. Fully informed consent, including support for the young person's express right to reject surgery, even if the parents are enthusiastically in favor, is the rare exception rather than the rule. As an organization committed to informed consent as a prerequisite to ethical sex reassignment surgery, WPATH must therefore join the intersex community and human rights forums, including the UN and EU, in opposing intersex genital mutilation and calling for all nations to follow the example of Malta and Chile in outlawing this violent form of child abuse. As an organization dedicated to the well-being and human dignity of sex and gender variant people, WPATH should above all oppose intersex genital mutilation for the same reasons as female genital mutilation. It at once reflects social stigma and reinforces it with the physical pain and lifelong psychological trauma of genital cutting, while risking and often in fact impairing sexual sensitivity. It is indeed a form of childhood sexual abuse that keeps on violating the survivor's bodily and sexual self-determination in adulthood, regardless of the intersex person's gender identity or sexual orientation. Indeed, the professional superstition and hubris behind intersex genital mutilation may be comparable to that behind clitoridectomies performed in the UK and USA during the 19th century to cure certain forms of hysteria, insanity, and epilepsy in women. For more information on this, please see Ruth Hirschberger's book, Adam's Rib, 1948. Just as the medical profession ultimately rejected this form of therapeutic female genital mutilation, so the similar violence of intersex genital mutilation must be decisively rejected with WPATH in a vitally important leadership position. Additionally, intersex genital mutilation may cause extra dysphoria and complications for the survivor who turns out not to identify with their assigned sex, rather as female genital mutilation may create special complications for the survivor who turns out to identify as a trans man. An organization concerned with the treatment of gender dysphoria may well take note of these special iatrogenic harms. However, neither female genital mutilation nor intersex genital mutilation is primarily an issue of gender identity, but of the purposeless infliction of stigma, suffering, and impairment of sexual feeling, whether as the main purpose or predictable collateral damage without the patient's informed consent. Only an intersex person's autonomous desire and fully informed consent at an appropriate age can justify such genital surgeries. It is imperative that WPATH be as forthright and assertive in affirming these simple ethical standards as it is, for example, in opposing immediate surgery for endosex children who may express a strong desire to transition in every way, with enthusiastic support from their parents. The message otherwise is that intersex people are of a lesser kind whose personal and bodily autonomy does not really count. The adage that silence is consent 
is all too appropriate where intersex medical child abuse is concerned. At Boston in 1996, medical professionals chose to circulate press releases stating how much they cared about their pediatric intersex patients while refusing to meet with former patients who had experienced intersex genital mutilation and fairly listened to their side of the story. Two decades later, WPATH can and must do better by meeting with the intersex community it has injured and collaborating with them on a plan to remedy the damage done and advance the global struggle by OII and other intersex activists to outlaw intersex genital mutilation throughout the globe. Removing Disorders of Sex Development from the Standards of Care, Depathologizing Intersex. Language counts, and good intentions will not avoid the harm done to intersex people and communities by the misbegotten phrase, Disorders of Sex Development, or DSD. While noting that, quote, some people object strongly to the disorder label, preferring instead to view these congenital conditions as a matter of diversity, and to continue using the terms intersex or intersexuality, with the former now generally preferred by intersex people and allies, WPATH attempts to justify its DSD usage from Standards of Care, Section 15, page 207. Quote, WPATH uses the term DSD in an objective and value-free manner with the goal of ensuring that health professionals recognize this medical term and use it to access relevant literature as a field progresses. WPATH remains open to new terminology that will further illuminate the experience of members of this diverse population and lead to improvements in healthcare access and delivery. As the intersex community and organizations such as OII have been declaring for many years, the way for WPATH to adopt new terminology that will further illuminate the experience of members of this diverse population is to go back to the future. Intersex is the appropriate term. Indosex trans allies must insist on this, with the pro-intersex genital mutilation poster session at Amsterdam as an object lesson of where DSD language and concepts all too easily lead us. Closely following the above quotation on the allegedly objective and value-free use of DSD language, WPATH notes the proposal current in 2011 for DSM-5 and since adopted, quote, to replace the term gender identity disorder with gender dysphoria, EBID at 208. So it would seem that the term disorder is not so objective or value-free when applied to trans people, whether indosex or intersex, if the term is objectionable when applied to gender-variant people and thus worth changing, it is at least equally objectionable when applied to intersex people generally. Using the simple and highly recognizable term intersex and noting where necessary that the historical literature includes terms such as gender identity disorder, GID, and disorders of sex development, DSD, now rightly replaced with non-pathologizing and inclusive language to recognize these human variations, is an approach allowing readers to access relevant literature, while also promoting human dignity and understanding for intersex and or trans people and human dignity and understanding are critically important ingredients in seeking improvements in healthcare access and delivery. Why WPATH has chosen to use DSD language is an open question. Either sheer inertia and deference to prevailing jargon or a more considered decision to go along in order to get along with certain colleagues are possibilities. The latter tendency may explain, for example, the defense by professionals who should know better of colleagues who have imposed reparative and often highly coercive therapies on trans and gender nonconforming children, despite that clear and commendable message of WPATH that such methods are futile, harmful, and also highly unethical.
In the case of intersex children, we are confronted with conversion therapists, like those presenting the poster session on DSD in Amsterdam, who are armed with scalpels. While it is easy for allies to inform WPATH that intersex is the correct and responsible term to use, and terms such as intersex variations for the range of sex characteristics and patterns of variation that intersex people may manifest, as opposed to the language of disorders, only the intersex community itself can negotiate with WPATH, a process of improving the standards of care which takes into account the experience of intersex people, trans or otherwise. We join the intersex community in demanding that such a dialogue promptly take place, leading to a new version of Section 15 and possibly other relevant portions of the standards of care released at the earliest possible date to address past injuries, including the recent poster session, and to move in a constructive direction in the timely way that the urgency of the situation requires. Intersex People Who Transition Affirmative Action by WPATH The simple actions of condemning intersex genital mutilation and its contribution to the iatrogenic manufacture and aggravation of sex dysphoria and replacing harmful DSD terminology with intersex-friendly language, including the word intersex itself, will do much to bring WPATH into compliance with the precept of the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. However, WPATH's obligations in its role of professional leadership go far beyond that. It has taken on the responsibility to see that all trans people, including intersex trans people, receive medically informed and culturally appropriate care. This means, especially, that professionals who deal with trans people and transition care must be informed both as to the nature of intersex variations of different kinds and the experiences of intersex people, whether intersex genital mutilation survivors or otherwise, who consider or seek out medical and social gender transitions of different kinds. Given WPATH's increased responsiveness to the realities and needs of non-binary trans people in version 7 of the standards of care, it is only appropriate that a dialogue with the intersex community include full recognition of non-binary intersex people such as Valoria and Zim, among whom some seek medical transition, as well as social and or legal recognition of their non-binary identities. Likewise, some, but not all, endosex trans people with non-binary identities seek medical transition through hormones and or surgery. In this pursuit of inclusiveness and excellence, only active dialogue with intersex trans people and a thorough rewriting and expansion of Section 15 to reflect this vast range of first-hand experience will do. The revolutionary insights and improvements growing out of such a process of dialogue and incorporated of lived experience may be comparable to changes in women's LGBTIQA and trans healthcare models and delivery brought about by feminist LGBTIQA and trans activism and advocacy over the last half century. Outrage at the Amsterdam poster session promoting intersex genital mutilation is the catalyst bringing home the need for this revolution, which yet is also promised on the abiding hope that WPATH will act in accord with its best human values as well as its highest standards of professional excellence in enjoining the international struggle against female genital mutilation and intersex genital mutilation alike and indeed fostering improvements in healthcare access and delivery for all trans and gender nonconforming people, including those who are intersex and face unique additional challenges and oppressions where all trans people and WPATH professionals should be informed and committed allies. Acknowledgement. Warmest thanks to Carrie Gabrielle Costello of the Intersex Roadshow and Transfusion 
for their invaluable feedback and suggestions, many of which are incorporated in my article, with the caution that any flaws or infelicities are solely my responsibility.